0: Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson.
1: Hi, Amber. Great to be here as always.
0: And Haley Kanoff. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Guys, we're
1: famous. (laughs) We are not above some shameless self-promotion, and as uh, listeners might already be aware, if you've been following any of us on Twitter, I saw at least three or four tweets. It's burning up uh, on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, Law 360's Pro Se is officially part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, we were lucky enough to have a uh, little audio cameo on the latest episode of She-Hulk, Attorney at
2: Law.
0: I would like to, number one, commend Alex Lawson's voice
2: performance there. It's just one little line, but you do it well. Incredible. The Emmys will be taking note for next That's year, right. obviously. That's right. we're We're a little late. It's uh, it it comes
1: naturally to me. Uh, As I said, as I'm described in the closed captioning, uh, I think I really crushed the role of man. Man (laughs) speaking. Absolutely. Uh, A man speaking on a podcast. Huge stretch for me. Uh, Well,
0: here's the big takeaway for me. So She-Hulk is an attorney. I mean, the subtitle of the show is She-Hulk Attorney at Law. Right. And we're her favorite podcast. That's what I'm gleaning from this. So we are superheroes favorite podcast.
1: That's what I'm saying. I mean, it, it's it just just like it is in in our actual universe. We are bringing sort of we are the cream <laughs> of the crop here, clearly.
0: In the multiverse, since Marvel is in a multiverse era. Yeah. Ah. Uh, yeah. Uh, does that mean there's definitely an Earth somewhere where pro se is bigger than, say, cereal or Pod Save oh, America? Wow.
2: Yeah, I mean... I I mean, yeah. We're number one Scientifically speaking, statistically speaking, yes.
1: Yeah, we've seen the implications of multiversal storytelling, and I think that that's well within bounds. Uh, So that was just something fun, you know, for the folks, for the people at home, uh, keen-eyed She-Hulk watchers. uh, Hope you guys get a kick out of that.
0: So we give you the fun moment to then turn around and tell you our main segment this week is actually about something a bit troubling, but interesting to know about. We talked to Jack Karp... And he explains to us an issue where many high profile litigants are facing increasing levels of harassment and threats after they file suit. So we're going to talk about that problem with Jack and sort of understand what's going on with the legal system there.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great I mean, as as bleak of a topic as it is, it's it was a really interesting conversation. So definitely stick around for that. Um, but first up, I actually wanted to bring us an update on another Jack Carp story from back in the day, um,
1: holding it down this week.
2: He really is. it's a it's a Jack episode. So there was a really big development in litigation surrounding the homelessness crisis. You may recall we talked about all the suits that have popped up around this issue back in April. So that is episode 242. If you missed that or just want to brush up, Jack walks us through all of that. Um, but this week, Los Angeles County announced a $236 million settlement with plaintiffs who sued over its handling of the crisis here in L.A. All of that funding will be going toward providing services for unhoused residents like mental health care, health care and addiction related support.
0: That's a really big number. I mean, 232 million is nothing to sneeze at there. Tell us more about the case and how we got there.
2: The suit was filed by an advocacy group called L.A. Alliance for Human Rights, along with several unhoused individuals. Now, it was filed in 2020 against both the city of L.A. and the county. And at the time, it was a first-of-its-kind action. No one had ever taken a city and a county to court before to try and force them to provide certain services for unhoused residents. And as you may recall, This case made headlines last year when a California district judge actually ordered the city and county to provide housing for the entire population of Skid Row. Uh, The Ninth Circuit ultimately overturned that decision, finding that the judge had relied upon unpled claims and theories in making that call. But it was a huge, huge decision at the time
1: you mentioned there was a, a settlement which is why we're talking about it this week but you said that that was with the county but there were also there was also a parallel suit filed against the city of los angeles what's the status of that
2: right so it's the same the same case actually um and the city reached its own big settlement with the plaintiffs earlier this year under that agreement the city will spend at least 2 billion over the next few years to open up enough beds for 60% of L.A. residents in need of housing. It also agreed to regulate its public spaces in a humane and equitable manner, which has been another really, really dicey issue here in L.A.
0: It really sets up the stakes of how big a problem the unhoused is in the L.A. area to say that $2 billion will only get you beds for 60% of right. residents in need. Yeah. Like, that's kind of crazy. but. Let's circle back to the county's settlement, since that's the newest bit here. Tell me some more specifics of that deal.
2: Right. So it still needs court approval. Got to mention that up front. But once it gets that, uh, the county will be funding street outreach teams, uh, substance use disorder services, health care, and interim and permanent housing options. The county will be working with the city on all of this. So the settlements really go hand in hand. And the California federal court overseeing this case will be monitoring compliance with these agreements, which is, I think, uh, a pretty big part of this. The court will be ensuring that the city and county are actually providing these things and making sure that they're meeting deadlines to do so.
1: That's an especially interesting part with the court taking on some watchdog role there because it's a government program, but the governments, the local governments were the ones being sued. So you can see why they wouldn't be entrusted to police themselves. Settlements of this nature are always a little bit tricky to navigate. You know, one side or the other can make a claim that it was resolved successfully. Um, But, it, you know, just at at first blush, it seems fairly significant for the plaintiffs. What are they saying about uh, about these developments?
2: They're actually agreeing. Yeah. And I thought the same thing because, uh, you know, L.A. County put out this massive... Press release on this on Monday, really touting it. Um, but I also spoke with Matthew Umhofer. He's one of the attorneys representing the plaintiffs. And he said that he agrees this is a really big deal. More than 20,000 individuals will be getting shelter and services thanks to this litigation. And all told, he said the city and county will be spending more than $3 billion on tackling the crisis in the coming years. A really big thing he emphasized was the importance of these support services. The way he put it is, you know, you can offer someone a bed, but it's very difficult to actually help them in the long-term unless you're also providing them with things like healthcare, mental health care, and addiction-related support. So these agreements with the city and county ensure that all of those pieces of the puzzle are there. So like I mentioned, LA County is also very, very proud of this. In Monday's statement, L.A. County Supervisor Hilda Solis acknowledged that all cities and communities have roles to play in caring for the unhoused. Here's a quote from her. Although this agreement between the county and the city of Los Angeles is born out of a long running lawsuit, I believe we can use it as an example of what is possible when the county and local jurisdictions come together, pool their resources, and work in tandem to support those in need. So as far as next steps go, the parties are putting this all into a final agreement that will be submitted to the court in the near future. That's being worked on right now. And then if it's approved, it'll be in effect for the next five years.
1: All right. Super interesting. Thanks, Haley, for bringing us that one. I wanted to shift gears now to what I think is a pretty fascinating malpractice case against the big law staple Proskauer Rose in Georgia. Now, this is a really long-running legal fight, which we'll dig into here, but it got sort of a breath of uh, new life last week when Georgia's Supreme Court found that there are still serious questions about whether Proskauer conspired to promote an illegal tax shelter scheme for a couple, a married couple, that leaned on the firm for advice more than 20 years ago. Now, this is a pretty naughty Weedy case. Um, I'm going to try and explain it as simply as I can. Turns on a couple of quirky procedural issues, but it's a big deal. It's attracted attention from big law stalwarts across the bar. Uh, More than a dozen white shoe law firms and a bunch of former Georgia Bar Association presidents uh, intervened in this case with amicus briefs uh, that called for it to basically be tossed uh, and for the claims against cross to be dropped. Like I say, though, the Georgia High Court allowed it to move forward uh, last week, and there are a number of really interesting takeaways that I think we should uh, dig into here.
2: So, Alex, you always, uh, not to not to steal your terminology here, but you tend to refer to uh, malpractice cases as catnip for Law360's <laughs> uh, readership and yeah. our listenership, perhaps. But What specifically do we need to know about this case?
1: Yeah, so as I say, it stretches back quite a long time. This relates to the sale of a business that was owned in part by a married couple named Douglas and Jacqueline Coe in 2001. So we're going back more than 20 years here. The Coe's accounting firm is is a company called BDO Sideman. And they advised this couple to use what's known as a distressed debt strategy. Please don't run away. I promise you it's <laughs> interesting. Uh, basically, this is just, this was a sort of a maneuver that was somewhat novel at the time. And it basically helps them avoid capital gains taxes from the sale of this business. And because it was somewhat uncharted territory, the accounting firm invited the couple to get insight from an independent law firm that ended up being Proskauer. And the Coes paid Proskauer thirty thousand dollars to basically write a legal opinion that said that, in their tax attorneys' expert opinions, this strategy is sound and legal and would survive any IRS audit or inquiry and things like that. Now, as you've probably guessed, we're talking about a malpractice suit, so it didn't exactly play out that way. The IRS, in fact, did begin an audit of the Coes in two thousand and five, and that ultimately ended with a settlement with the IRS in 2012 that saw the couple pay what they have described as quote significant back taxes, penalties, and interest. The Coes sued Proskauer in 2015. They made a bunch of different claims. They chiefly accused them of conspiring with BDO, the accounting firm, to basically issue this sham opinion about the legality of this tax strategy all while hiding the firm's relationship with this accounting shop, um, which included like that they would share fees that the co's paid and that this relationship wasn't exactly spelled out in the contracting documents. But that basically brings us up to speed. They got some bad what, what, what they viewed as some bad tax advice from Proskauer, and they've been suing uh, for for many years over this.
0: Okay, I totally understand where we are so far, but how did this make its way to the highest court in Georgia? What what did that court have to rule on here?
1: So it moved along steadily through Georgia's court system, and the main conflict has now centered around whether the coes let too much time go by before deciding to sue Proskauer. So yes, uh, we are talking about both distressed debt strategies and also statutes of limitation. But honestly,
0: I, thank goodness it's a malpractice one to keep somebody's <laughs> attention with the <laughs> stuff going on.
1: Yeah. So the uh, relevant statutes here range between s- four and six years, and basically the thrust of Proskauer's defense was that the codes should have been aware of potential claims they could bring against the firm. By 2005 at the latest, which is when the IRS audit began, meaning that when it filed suit in 2015, the suit is well past due the the, the statute of limitations. So that argument actually held up at a Georgia appeals court last year, which held that the Coes were not doing enough diligence in sussing out whether Proskauer defrauded them or was up to some shady stuff, and that they filed their suit too late. But just last week, the Peach State, uh, the High Court there, brought just like I said, breathed new life into the suit. They said that just because there was this increasing public attention on these type of distressed asset shelters in the 2000s, that alone, like just the existence of some news articles about this kind of hazy strategy, um, that isn't enough to find that the that the coes, you know, should have known that they might have claims. There's so many sort of dependent things like within this reasoning, as you can see. The court also said that Proskauer had, quote, a higher duty to more fully disclose its relationship with the accountants at BDO. Here was, uh, I think, a pretty instructive quote from the court. A genuine issue of material fact exists as to whether the Coes had actual knowledge about Proskauer's lack of independence and we cannot say that as a matter of law, the coes had knowledge that Proskauer was not an independent law firm based solely on the language in the engagement letter. So we have a case that's headed back to the trial court. The court thinks that this is still a ripe legal issue. This question of when they should have known and when they could have brought a suit is still very much alive in the court's mind.
2: I imagine this is something that a lot of uh Big law firms are really paying attention to now, uh, but what do you, what would you say are the big takeaways here?
1: Yeah, as I said earlier, uh, firms like DLA Piper, Austin and Bird, and King and Spalding—they all signed on to an amicus brief urging the court to toss the case. They basically—you can see why. I mean, they are not going to support any kind of case law that says, "Hey." I advised these people on a tax decision 20 years ago and they sued me 14 years after we even, you know, ended our business relationship basically. So it thinks, you know, firms are, you know, vulnerable to being sued, uh, you know, long after these relationships have run their course. I did want to say just in terms of like big level takeaways, Proskauer is now back on the hook for potential malpractice claim but the court did say that the clock had run out for the co's uh, fraud and negligent misrepresentation claims. So that's sort of a partial win for the firm on that front. Some attorneys told law 360 that they saw the court is taking a very cautious position on pressing questions that they would have wanted a little more clarity on specifically the extent to which a client can rely on statements that a firm made during the course of its representation. And whether if the Attorney client relationship is terminated, how that affects the degree to which you can rely on things you were told a very long time ago? Instead, the court just said, uh, yeah, these sure are some important questions, and you guys should definitely figure that out uh, at trial if it comes to that. So that kind of left some attorneys wanting, according to uh, the analysis that we uh, had up on this. Others said that one kind of ripple effect here is that this is likely to shine a brighter light on conflict waivers and basically encourage firms to be more explicit in saying like, actually, yes, we are representing your accounting firm and we have a fee sharing deal with them so that this doesn't come back to bite you and lead to, you know, a decades worth of litigation. So as I say, the case effectively restarts now. Um, attorneys basically don't see this as a slam dunk for either side. You can see that the case is sort of over the course of 20 years of squabbling now. It's becoming sort of more finely shaped. And there are legitimate questions on both sides as to whether it's worth it to bring a malpractice claim if, you are, if you're going to be in it for this long of a fight. And on the other side as well, the firm still isn't rid of this claim, so it hasn't uh, completely shielded itself either. So we'll definitely keep an eye on it as it kicks back to the uh, trial court level.
0: Litigants in high-profile lawsuits and their lawyers are increasingly facing threats and harassment. That's bad enough, but the situation is stopping some people from turning to the courts in the first place. And for those who do file lawsuits, the harassment may be impacting the outcome of their cases. Back on the show today, we have our senior reporter, Jack Carp. He's going to help us understand the harassment that's damaging the legal system. Welcome back, Jack.
3: Thanks, Amber. Good to see you.
0: So your story on this issue of harassment um, has a bunch of examples in it. And I wanted us to just sort of start there with, like, what kinds of people are we talking about that face harassment when they file a lawsuit?
3: Right. Well, the the most common type of plaintiff um, who's harassed or threatened are tend to be involved in lawsuits over, say, sexual harassment, sexual abuse or lawsuits that involve a celebrity, particularly if a celebrity is uh, a much beloved. So if you put those two things together in a lawsuit, you kind of get a perfect storm. So, you know, a perfect example is the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp case that, you know, recently wrapped up. You know, Amber Heard, um, and she testified to this in court, got a ton of harassment, a ton of threats, um, over the course of that litigation, there recently were a bunch of lawsuits um, against the uh, Brown's quarterback, Sean Watson, accusing him of sexual harassment. And one of the women, I think she was the first woman to file a lawsuit against him, also said that she had gotten a, a bunch of harassment, a bunch of threats for filing that lawsuit. So those are kind of the, the most likely candidates, um, so to speak, for the type of plaintiff that's going to be harassed. But, it, you know, it can absolutely happen to anybody. And one of the one of the situations that I think it's, it's starting to happen more commonly and now are, you know, lawsuits involving kind of like controversial high profile political issues. Um, so, you know, for example, there is a National Butterfly Center in Texas that has been embroiled in years long litigation with Steve Bannon and his group, We Built the Wall, over his attempts to privately build a southern border wall across their property. <laughs> um, and so they, you know, sued him and his group to stop him from doing that. And they have also been targeted by, you know, right-wing conspiracy theories, harassment, threats. Um, so it, you know, it, it's it, I do feel like the universe of cases that this is likely to happen in is kind of broadening.
0: You know things are bad when we're harassing the butterfly people. Yeah. I mean, that's really <laughs> I like, know, we've that's reached just a rough. level. <laughs> um, so when we say harassment, maybe we can also drill down just a little bit about what exactly we mean by that? Are we talking just online threats? Has some of this entered into the real physical world? Like what kind of things did you uncover with some of those examples?
3: Right. Well, you know. Obviously, the vast majority of this is online. We're talking about posts on social media, you know, that are, you know, denigrating and insulting people, but also kind of threatening them. But it is definitely kind of also come offline. A lot of some of this is doxing where, you know, someone's personal information, like their address or phone number is posted online. Um, and several of people I've you know, spoken to or read court documents uh, about their cases have, you know, gotten texts on their phone, phone calls. And in some instances, you know, the, the Butterfly Center being one of them, people have physically shown up at their place of business or their home. Um, you know, the Butterfly Center, The part of the reason why it came to my attention is that they actually had to shut down for a few months earlier this year because, in part, a, um, a Republican congressional candidate showed up. At the butterfly center and it like physically attacked the executive director and allegedly allegedly tried to run her son over with her car <laughs> so oh this, this can my. absolutely move from the virtual world to the real world and have you know real world consequences
2: that is really scary but we should note i mean it's not necessarily a new thing for high profile litigants to be threatened or face backlash like this. But it seems like it's becoming a lot more common. Do you get that sense? And and why is that?
3: Right. Um, so, yeah. So lawyers I've spoken to who kind of deal with these issues do say, you know, this kind of stuff has happened before. You know, it has been happening for years. But they they say it is becoming, you know, if not more common, then certainly more intense. And it is, again, it's kind of spreading from this small universe of cases where it used to happen that, like, f- were very specific sexual harassment, sexual abuse allegations, you know, often against celebrities, to a wider realm of cases like, you know, politically charged cases. And, you know, they all point to the, a very predictable culprit for why that's happening, which is the internet. Um, the internet sure. seems to be having kind of a twofold impact on these situations. One... Um, it's just making information about these cases much more widely accessible to the public. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to follow a case to you know to read about its developments, to even you know get a hold of court documents online than
0: it used to be. Yeah, it used to be people couldn't get this mad because they didn't even know these cases were happening. Right,
3: exactly. I mean, I think the, the Butterfly Center case is a perfect example where, you know, in the olden days before the internet. Probably only like the local newspaper in Mission, Texas would have covered this. But now you have a situation where Steve Bannon will post about it on his social media accounts. And so everybody in the country knows about it. Um, So that's that kind of ability to get more information, which I, you know, generally, I think a lot of people would say is actually a good thing on the whole is one of the issues. And then, of course, social media is predictably the other where, It just creates a situation where people feel more liberated to be nasty, um, especially when you can do so anonymously. That's obviously that's not just true when it comes to these cases. That's in every aspect of American life. It seems that people are just a lot more willing to be vile um, online than they ever would be face to face with with human beings.
0: Yeah. Go to the comments section of anything controversial and you'll see a microcosm of this. But now it's really hitting the judicial system as well. Right. We've talked about how this is increasingly pervasive. Does this also manifest for the lawyers themselves? Because so far we've talked about Amber Heard or someone who sued a football player. What about their representatives?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I I did speak with several attorneys who have actually experienced this themselves again, you know, very often in sexual assault, sexual abuse, you know, defamation cases, but also in these kind of higher profile political cases. Um, A really good example of that is a few years ago, there was a massive lawsuit filed against the white nationalists who were behind the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And the lead attorney for the plaintiffs in that case was harassed and, you know, threatened and had some really nasty things posted about the fact that she's Jewish online. Um, And she actually, you know, I only know about that because she actually went to a judge and and tried to get, you know, basically a restraining order over those threats. Um, I spoke to another attorney. You know, this does happen on both sides of the political issue. I spoke to another attorney who represented um, former President Trump in one of his many lawsuits challenging the results of the 2020 election. And she, you know, had also received harassment, received threats to the point that she, you know, she felt the need to tell the judge hearing the case about it. So it definitely does happen to attorneys. Um, I think it probably takes a slightly different tenor with some attorneys. You know, some of the attorneys I spoke to talked less about being physically threatened and more about things like being review bombed, where, you know, somebody just posts a ton of really negative reviews about them. Or, you know, they get spam attacks where they get, you know, tens of thousands of spam emails in a day and it kind of shuts down their whole computer system.
0: Right. Which might be a little less scary, but has real impacts on their business. Yeah,
3: absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, one attorney told me that she has missed emails from clients and judges because she was so inundated with all of these spam emails. So it is definitely happening to attorneys and Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think that, you know, it could, you know, most lawyers would say, you know, that they are not discouraged or dissuaded from taking a case by this. But, you know, I definitely think it could impact whether a lawyer decides to take on a case or not if they know that this is kind of what they're setting themselves up for if they take on a case.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about the consequences for the legal system itself, because, I mean, we can easily imagine the like mental toll that this takes on On anyone getting these sorts of threats or having their work even disrupted like this. But what how is this changing what is getting filed and even how cases are proceeding through the courts?
3: Right, absolutely. Um, you know, and obviously, like you said, like, you know, the the biggest threat that all of this poses is the physical threat to the people who are the subject of this harassment. But you know, it does have other ramifications for the for the legal system. You know, I you know, I you know, one lawyer I spoke to told me that he has seen clients settle cases early or drop cases entirely rather than continue to deal with the harassment. You know, it also could theoretically impact the outcomes of cases. I spoke to one attorney who kind of tends to deal with these kinds of cases who said that it is uh, most likely, I think was the phrase she used, that all of the threats and harassment around Amber Heard could have impacted the jury's verdict in that case. You know, obviously there's no way to know that for sure, but the stuff gets into the air. You know, I'm sure jurors are seeing it online just like everybody else. So it definitely could impact the outcome of cases. I think the the biggest concern that attorneys I spoke with have though is about the cases that just aren't being filed. You know, all the plaintiffs or potential plaintiffs who are harassed or sexually abused or defamed who would go to court against their, to file against the person who's harassing or abusing them. And then they see what happened to Amber Heard. They see what happened to the woman who who sued um, Deshaun Watson. And they think to themselves that this is not worth it. I am not going to put myself through this. And so those cases never really get filed. And, you know, again, obviously there's no way of knowing how big that number is. But pretty much every attorney um, and expert I spoke to about this was, was confident that there are cases that are not being filed in the courts specifically because potential plaintiffs are afraid of this happening to them.
0: Yeah. I mean, you hear all the time that victims of things like uh, sexual harassment or abuse face so many problems just to come forward and then to go the extra step to litigate about it, often against a powerful person who, who allegedly perpetrated that act. That's really hard and then you add this on top of it, it must seem nearly impossible for some of those victims.
3: Right. Absolutely. And I, I do think it's important to note, again, there's no kind of national database of threats and harassment against plaintiffs. So that all this evidence is anecdotal. But from what I saw reporting this story, the vast majority of plaintiffs who are experiencing this kind of harassment are women. You know, right. it's women in sexual harassment, sexual abuse cases, defamation cases, and even in political cases, like at the National Butterfly Center or over the, you know, the Unite the Right rally, the plaintiff and attorney being harassed in those cases were also women. It, it does seem to more often be happening to women. Um, and again, like you said, like, you know, it, it's already difficult enough for, for women who are victims of certain kinds of abuse or harassment to kind of come forward as it is. And this definitely makes that harder.
0: So I like that we're talking about this to shine a light on it, but I'm not going to lie. This is leaving me in a pretty bleak (laughs) place, this conversation, especially since it disproportionately is impacting women. Jack, what can we watch moving forward? I mean, you just said there's no database to really track this. Is there anything being done about this problem? Any sliver of hope you can leave me with? (laughs) Well, the short answer is no. Um, There is no as far as as that.
3: Sorry, (laughs) Allie. Um, As far as I know or or have seen, there is no kind of like large macro level, you know, effort to to do anything about this, you know, for instance, like legislation Um, on it on the individual micro level on a case by case basis. You know, you do see a lot of attorneys, particularly in cases involving sexual abuse, sexual harassment, you know, moving to move forward with a case with anonymous plaintiffs. Um, you know, using initials or, you know, Jane Doe as a way of protecting their clients. And you do also see, I think more, I think more plaintiffs, more plaintiffs attorneys are starting to kind of push back a little bit, you know, and go to court and kind of, you know, try and get, you know, a judge to enjoin certain behaviors, kind of at least put it in the court record that right. this is happening. But yeah, to be completely honest, I don't know that there's a whole lot that can be done to squelch this kind of behavior because for the most part it's pretty much already you know if not illegal in some cases you know obviously very kind of socially unacceptable and that doesn't seem to have stopped it i don't know that you know legislating the solution to this problem is is something that's possible i think unfortunately between social media and also just kind of like the growing you know political polarization in the country this probably is something that we're just going to continue to see And it becomes kind of up to individual lawyers, individual judges to to fight back against it as best they can.
0: At least the more we get the word out about this and other people start talking about it, lawyers can plan for this eventuality and try to buffer as much as possible.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think that, you know, a lot of the, the lawyers who do take on these kind of cases know what they're getting themselves into and they are prepared for it. And they do seem to have, you know, the ones I spoke to at least do seem to have some strategies for dealing with it kind of lined up.
0: Jack, thank you for bringing the story, even though it is a depressing one. It's a really important (laughs) issue for everybody to know about and, and having this sort of bubbling in the background of the legal system. Thanks a lot for being with us.
3: Thank you, Amber. And thank you, Haley.
0: We liked in our show with something offbeat, and I know we already had tax in this show, but I'm also wanting to talk about research right now.
2: Oh, Great. boy. Cool.
0: <laughs> okay. So, lawyers obviously do a bunch of research to figure out what case law to include in their legal filings. But how do you know when you've done enough? That's the big question I'd like to pose. It was faced recently by the Labor Department. Here's what happened there's a case in the First Circuit the Labor Department says a New England power company wrongly classified some employees as exempt from overtime. So that's what they're fighting about. The parties got into a back and forth over the relevance of a Massachusetts federal court ruling that found an employee of another company was exempt. And so in the briefing, though, neither side, not the power company, not the Labor Department, mentioned that the ruling had actually been appealed and vacated.
1: Oof. Bad law. We're, yeah. we're, we're citing bad law here.
0: That's right. So the power company had first brought up the district court ruling, but the DOL then went on to respond in one of their filings, arguing that it wasn't relevant to the case at hand, but they never mentioned that the district
2: court's decision had been thrown out. Very embarrassing. How does something like that happen? Isn't it your like entire job to be on top of this? It is. And I mean, it's tough though, right? Like, There's a lot of citations
0: in briefs. There's a lot of things that go into it. So here's what happened with this one. DOL actually had to go back and file a supplemental authority uh, document with the court to explain why they cited to a vacated ruling. Their explanation was, I think, pretty interesting. DOL said that Westlaw only recently added that appellate ruling to their database, even though the First Circuit had vacated the lower court ruling in January 2019. So that's more than three years before the current case actually even hit the circuit court.
2: Westlaw, what are you up to? Yeah, I mean
0: <laughs> we I mean, you know,
1: let's not hide the ball here. I mean, we <laughs> have some we we have little, some we got skin like, in the game. We, we got a little skin in the game in terms of uh dunking on Westlaw. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh I mean, of
0: appellate course. Appellate rulings
1: showing up uh three years late. I don't know about all that.
0: Look. Of course, Lexus is better and everyone should just use that. But in fairness (laughs) to Westlaw, we did, when we were writing about the story, reach out to them. Of course, Westlaw is owned by Thomson Reuters. And so Reuters responded to us and they simply explained that their database had in fact failed to fully capture that subsequent case history. They have this thing in Westlaw. It's called Keysight. It's basically a little flag system that shows you while you're researching if any subsequent rulings have either endorsed, questioned, or vacated the opinion you're looking at. This case should have had a red flag, like a literal red flag. (laughs) But instead, in the database, it only had a different little flag that showed that the district court decision had been appealed, but not what happened to it. So that's kind of how this got messed up for the DOL attorneys. One employment litigation partner who's not at all involved in the suit, but we uh, were contacting some people for their opinion on what had happened here and how you handle this in a legal writing way um so john steingart wrote that story for our employment authority um, section and the attorney said to him that quote it's every lawyer's nightmare to rely on a case in an appellate brief without knowing it's bad law
1: you know it's very easy to armchair quarterback i was sort of poking fun at that before but i mean this is why i mean even i you know we have we have both tools and also human beings who are scouring dockets for us but even when i assigned to write about something, you know, I go and check the actual PACER so You're like, hey, what is yep. the most current set of information here? Is this not something that's like standard practice? I don't know.
0: Yeah. So here's the thing. I mean, John's reporting. You did talk to a lot of legal writing experts um, about like what level of double checking should you do for things you find in very robust databases like Westlaw, Lexis, you know, things like that. And pretty much everybody said, of course, if you have the time to go double check things in PACER, that's never bad. But in many situations, that would be overkill. That would actually be pretty expensive for your clients in some instances. I mean, as attorneys, you're often paid hourly here. If you are having to look up everything you've cited in every brief, not just in the databases where you got it and and that sort of thing, but also doing extensive double checks in PACER, You can see how that could get a little unwieldy depending on what's going on. But there are strategies to like check without having to go maybe that quite that far to just do a pacer double check of everything. If you see any kind of flag like what happened in Westlaw and it says there's an appellate court action pending, especially in this instance where it'd been several years. Maybe that's one you look up in Pacer, like maybe a yeah. sort of triage in some way.
1: Like, hey, did they ever get around to filing a brief here? <laughs> right, Or uh, do right. they have an argument? Uh,
0: something. And the other way to really double check things, and this is one that's, you know, all the law students that are listening right now are like, yeah, I'm doing this stuff right now. And so every associate out there is probably like, yep, I'm writing this way right now. <laughs> one of the big things you do in legal writing is that you just see where the case you're about to cite to, where else it's been cited. Like, what other cases bring up the one you want to bring up? And you do that not just to see if it's technically good law still, but also just to see how persuasive it really is. You know, Mm -hmm. did a bunch of judges cite it for the same reason you want to cite it or for some other part of the case? Like, that kind of stuff. That can also help unveil if there is some subsequent development in the case, because usually as you're digging around and where it's cited, you'll figure that out.
2: Man, well, I imagine... I don't know about you both, but I have a lot of stress dreams where I have, like, forgotten to write an entire story, and then the deadline is three hours past. (laughs) Sure. But this seems like a scenario that probably haunts the (laughs) nightmares of of attorneys. Yeah, I mean,
0: if it didn't before, Haley, it's definitely going to now that they've heard this episode. Like, they're all going to be thinking about it. Sorry for the nightmares, listeners, but I do think this was an interesting one, particularly since it happened to pretty sophisticated DOL attorneys. So very interesting that this this played out this way.
1: I think we've stumbled onto a new standing sign off, and that is sorry for the nightmares. <laughs> See you next week, folks.
0: Yeah, that's as good a, an end tag as any that I've found for this show. So sorry for the nightmares, everybody. And uh, <laughs> thanks to you, Alex and Haley, both for being my co host again this week. Thanks, Amber. Thank you. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Jack Carp, and our contributing reporters, Rosie Mannins, Andrew Strickler, and John Steingart. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us five stars in a written review so other people can more easily find us. And if you want to read more about the things we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.